um, and activities for them as well. Um, you don't have to, but that option is, uh, is always open. So if you were here last week, you remember that we have started what was supposed to be this little two-week kind of little series under the idea of, that I've simply titled, God Is, and it's an exploration of Psalm 103. And, and really it was, it was born out of an interaction that Meredith and I had with our kids. This got me started to think, or had me really thinking about the nature and character of God and what we kind of think about God. And so I'm going to recap just a little bit so that if you weren't here last week, you know where we're going. Because technically we're going to have to go into a third week because there's just no way I'm going to get through it all today. And so it's going to be a, now a three-week little picture of, of the nature and character of God. But this whole thing started when we were taking a little family vacation and we were driving to Austin to go see our family. And, and my son, Cooper, is really into karate. And not just karate like the sport, but like karate chopping things. And so he loves to just chop stuff. And so it doesn't matter where it is or where we are, he is a chopper. And so he is in the back seat and he was doing something. He was talking about karate and things. And in his head, he gets started thinking about what's the biggest thing that I can karate chop or the biggest person. And he gets in this whole little thing and he's going through all the people that he knows that are bigger than him. And, and he finally gets to the biggest person that I think he can imagine. He starts talking about karate chopping Jesus. He's like, I'm going to karate chop Jesus. And uh, Haley, who's sitting on the, in the back seat next to him, goes, ooh, Cooper, you better not talk bad about Jesus or he will give you a punishment. And uh, we just burst out. We were laughing so hard because it sounded so funny. You know, if you talk bad about Jesus or you karate chop him, he's going to give you a punishment. So then I launch into this long theological discussion with my eight-year-old on why Jesus won't give us punishment when we do. And, my mom, and, we, and you know, it's all lost on her. And we just start laughing again because Cooper's got this imagination that's going where he's just chopping the back of my seat. And I really think he's kung fu fighting Jesus. And uh, and in my opinion, Jesus would win. I think Jesus is probably a pretty good kung fu fighter. But nonetheless, it made me start thinking. I started thinking, what do we really believe about the nature and character of God? I mean, my daughter's misguided theology aside, what do you and I really believe about the nature and character of God and how he moves and works and acts in the world? Because I think that most of us have a pretty good idea of what we believe about God, but it's really different a lot of times in how we act. What I mean is that we can believe that God is a God of forgiveness, but if we walk around living lives that are racked in guilt and steeped in, in kind of oppression and bondage, do we really believe that God is a God of forgiveness, or is it just something that we say? Now, I really think we have these ideas in our minds about what God is, or at least who God should be, but how that plays out in our life is often really different, difficult. And so... I really started wrestling with Psalm 103 because Psalm 103 is it's an incredibly gospel-rich psalm. It points us to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God really laid this on my heart as a picture of, of his character and nature. Now, ultimately, one psalm could never define or capture the nature and character of God. But I think it's a really great place to start. And last week, we unpacked the first five verses as we talked about the notion that God is worthy. And we look at those verses as an exploration or a launching place for our exploration to discover that God is worthy of our worship. And as, as we read in our little response of reading earlier, that, that verse that you said over and over again was, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being praise his holy name. 
The idea being that the psalmist begins this introduction by saying worship is something that takes place in the deepest recesses of our lives. And for a lot of us, worship is something that we do. It's an activity that we go to. It's set, got a set place in time. It's something that we engage in. I like this song. Um, I like that scripture. I hear that message. I'm engaged and entertained from the outside. But it very seldom is something that, that transforms my life once I leave here. And our psalmist is saying, he's saying that worship begins with the depths of our soul, the very, this very stirring of who we are. All my inmost being, the deepest recesses of me should praise the Lord. And you want to know why. And he lays out those five things that we kind of looked at last week. And as a quick little recap, he laid out these, uh, these things where he says, you know, um, that God forgives our sins and he heals our diseases and he redeems our life from the pit and he crowns us with love and compassion. He satisfies our desires and he renews our, renews our youth. And we talked about how those were sort of a foreshadow of some of the things he was going to explain later on in the psalm. But really, they were there as a picture to say that all of these things stir my soul to such wonder that my life is about worship. And so I thought what we'd do over the, those two weeks was we'd really explore what Psalm 103 shows us about the nature and character of God. And it's since going to turn into an extra week. But the idea last week was God is worthy. God is worthy of my soul's praise. God is worthy of my very life crying out to him because he does these things for us. He redeems our life from the pit. He forgives our sins. He cures our diseases. All the things that we've talked about last week and unpacked what those look like. He renews our youth. That God is that great and that he deserves and demands our very worship. So we've got to understand the nature and character of God from the standpoint of, of where we started last week, which is God is worthy. God is bigger and, and, and better than anything that this world and life has to offer. That God is worthy of our very lives and of our worships. And this week, we're going to dive into the next three things as we explore the nature and character of God. And the thing I challenged everybody to last week was to remember this. The Psalms are written as songs in poetry. That's how they're composed. A lot of times we forget that the Bible was not written for us, that the picture of Scripture that we have was not written for us to read in the 21st century and, and decide whether or not it, it makes literary sense. The Bible was a tool of worship, and especially the Psalms were a tool of worship. They were used by the Israelites as part of their worship experience. And a lot of the Psalms were songs, and a lot of the Psalms were poems. And Psalm 103 is a piece of poetry. And any great piece of poetry challenges us to kind of be moved in our head and in our heart. That we can't just take a theological approach and say, yes, this is who God is and this is what the psalmist was saying. Because a lot of what's happening is underlying tones. And a lot of it is lost in translation, as we're going to talk about today. But look at Psalm 103 as a piece of poetry. What is God speaking to you and how does that challenge you to move both in your head and in your heart? So before we dive into our text today, let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to be in Psalm 103 together. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place together. God, we thank you that we're here from all different walks of life. God, that we all brought different baggage and different stuff and different things in this room. But that, God, you are a God who meets each one of us right where we are. That, God, you are a God who meets us in the middle of our struggles, or in the middle of our hurts, in the middle of our questions and doubts and pain. You're a God who meets us in the middle of our joys and triumph and success. God, we thank you that, that um, you're going to move in our lives this morning. Take just a moment right where you're sitting and just pray. Just say, God, I want you to move in me in, in, in a spectacular way this morning.
And pray for someone beside you. Just pray that God would move in them, that God would do something powerful in their life. Even if you don't know their name, just pray over them. God, we love you and we thank you so much for your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you and so move in us today. Open our hearts and give us insight and teach us. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Instead of reading Psalm 103, we, we kind of already read it together. It was part of our, uh, our intro into worship. I, I thought we'd just kind of dive in. And, and we, as I mentioned earlier, in order to understand the, the rest of the verses, we have to understand where the psalmist is taking us from. So he lays this out. He's saying this piece of poetry begins and ends with my soul praising God. And it begins with my soul praising God because of his benefits, because he forgives our sins, heals our diseases, redeems us from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies you, renews your um, youth like the eagles. And we're going to start in verse 6 today. And we're going to look at three more characteristics of the nature um, of God, of who God really is. Verse 6 says this, the Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. You know that the, the word righteousness in the Old Testament is oftentimes partnered with the word faithfulness. That it really means the faithfulness of God, especially when used in the Old Testament. So Psalmist is saying here, God is faithful. God works faithfully or righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. You know, this, this verse, this idea really has to do with the nature of God as the divine king. Now, you've got to understand Israel as a nation. I mean, God is the king of Israel. Even though Israel had clamored and whined and had wanted an earthly king, God was still the divine king. And the role of the king was to protect and provide and fight for the people. That was the role of a king. I mean, an, an honest role of a king, not a self-seeking king that's looking after his own wealth, but a, but a real king of a real nation that was, that was fighting for his people was a king that would protect and provide and fight for and give help to his people. And God was ultimately the divine king. He was a divine king of Israel. And so God's righteousness is really God's faithfulness. What this means is that God, as king of Israel, was the protector and provider and the freer, the guy that would free the oppressed. He would help the needy. God was the ultimate source of help. God was faithful. And I never, I never really understood this, and I venture to think that most of us really don't understand this concept. Because most of us have never lived life, a life of oppression. Most of us have never been in a place of, of total helplessness. Now, some of us have, and, and I don't want to discount that, but for the most part, many of us have never lived in a place where we've wondered if God has absolutely forgotten us. We've ever been in a place of, of such oppression that we didn't know if we could breathe. We've never felt so helpless that we didn't know if tomorrow would ever come. My picture of this verse really changed when I met, when I met Peter. Peter was my translator as we, as we were walked the trail in Uganda. Um, Peter was, he was a young man, and we spent five days together, every day, eight hours a day, walking the trail, talking with people, sharing our story about Jesus Christ with people in Uganda. And, and, and Peter and I started visiting, and we visited a lot, and Peter told me his story, and Peter's story changed my understanding of, God, of God's faithfulness forever. 
You know, Peter grew up in northern Uganda. And if you know anything about African history or anything about Ugandan history, you know that the LRA, or the Lord's Resistance Army, is, is uh, um, it's an incredible force um, throughout a lot, large portion of Africa and was incredibly oppressive. And I wish I had time to tell you all the, all the kind of stories there, but you can Google it and look it up or you can rent the movie Blood Diamond and you'll figure it out. But the idea is, is that Peter lived his life in total oppression of the LRA. This army of soldiers um, literally ruled the area um, with fear and with threat. And every day, Peter lived his life under the threat that the LRA would come in and take him, capture him, and turn him into a boy soldier, um, where literally they would brainwash these children and have them do atrocities um, in the name of, well, who their leader was and also the Lord. And, and Peter lived his life in this kind of oppression, knowing that any day could be the day that he was captured and taken. His father was captured and taken. He lived with his two sisters and his mom in a little grass hut in northern Uganda. And, and one day all of his fears were realized when the LRA rode in on motorcycles and they ran and hid in the bushes. And he watched his family be murdered by machete um, while he hid in the woods. He watched literally his mother and his two sisters be murdered. And as I sat there listening to his story, I thought, I have nothing to say. Like, I don't even have a question that I could ask that would make any, it just wouldn't be right. And I was just struck by the, the life of this young man. And, and so finally, when I got enough courage and enough kind of momentum to ask a question, it was just a simple one. I just said, I said, Peter, how did you find the courage to go on? I mean, after watching this and living in that and realizing every day after that could be the day where you were killed or where you were captured and, and the hatred and the anger that must have stemmed inside of you. God, where did you find the courage to, to go on? And he, and he told me the story about there was a pastor in the area and Peter's family were not believers and he was not a believer, but there was a pastor in the area who kind of connected with him as a youth. And, and after this atrocity had happened, continued to spend time with him and kept telling him over and over that the Lord will fight for the oppressed, that he will bring justice to the oppressed. And he kept telling him over and over this phrase. He says, Peter, God has not forgotten you. And he told him that over and over, God has not forgotten you. He will bring freedom and justice to the oppressed. That's what the Bible says. And Peter said he just sort of clung to that. And he got saved about a year later. And now he's in training to become a pastor. And as we walked the trail, I thought, I have no idea what God's faithfulness is really about. My picture of faithfulness of God is saying, God, things are tight this month. I'm going to need some money to buy groceries. Please provide. Now, while that's evidence of God's faithfulness, yes, it's not at the place where Peter needed to trust God as total protector, provider, as king, and just say, God, you are going to be the person who frees me, who brings justice, that you are faithful. In the middle of my tragic life, you're faithful. God is faithful. I mean, that is a picture of his character and his nature, that God is faithful. The Lord works righteousness, faithfulness, and justice for all the oppressed. God is divine king. He is protector and provider and caregiver of his people. That is his character and his nature. You know, a lot of times we think of the faithfulness of God only in so much as we can't do it ourselves. 
So we do everything we can to our own means. And then when we just can't make that last thing happen, we say we're finally going to trust God. But really the faithfulness of God is saying, God, I don't trust you with the daily things of my life. I trust you with my very existence. That you are my king. You are my protector, my liberator, my, my God. So when we talk about the faithfulness as a characteristic of God, we're not talking about a God who just makes sure that we you know, don't go without. We're talking about a God that, that knows about and cares for and protects every corner of our life. And that's the faithfulness that comes of, of a God who gives justice to the oppressed. So God is worthy. God is worthy of our inmost praise. And God is, he's faithful. Look at verses uh, 7 and down. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. You know, the, the next thing that we see in these verses about the nature and character of God is really wrapped up in that phrase that's translated, abounding in love. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You know the word, the Hebrew word that's, that's there that translates that phrase abounding in love is actually a word that is so complex and so rich that it's, it's, it's really supremely untranslatable. And, and, and it's the word hesed. It's a Greek word called hesed. And it's, it's so untranslatable that it's connected with all kinds of things in the Old Testament. And our NIV translates it as abounding in love. The RSV translates it as steadfast love. But really, it can mean all kinds of things. And in order to understand the depth of this word, that God is slow to anger, abounding in love, we have to understand what this word hesed is connected with in the Old Testament in order to understand sort of the nature and character of God because it, it really encompasses so much. But the idea of hesed in the, in the Old Testament is, is connected with a lot of things. It's connected with this loving kindness, this idea of, of, a, of a rich, steadfast, faithful love that God is, is so in love with his creation that it goes against our understanding of love for the things that God would do for us. So when we are supremely unfaithful, God is, in his love, supremely faithful. Loving kindness is really this picture of a God that is in love with his creation. It's, it's where we get that phrase, abounding in love. I mean, it really is tied to that idea that God is more than just love, as we might try and translate out of uh, the book of 1 John chapter 4. God abounds in it. He's steadfast in it. It's a part of his character and nature. Um, it's a love that goes beyond our understanding. It's a kindness. It's part of his character to love. The idea of hesed is also strongly, strongly associated with the idea of mercy or grace. In fact, it actually can be translated as grace. The New Testament idea of grace or mercy in the Old Testament so some places in the Old Testament, we find the word hesed translated as mercy or goodness. It's the picture of a God that is merciful in the middle of our absolute sinfulness. It's the picture of the God of Israel, right? I mean, Israel was unfaithful. 
As a nation, they turned their back on God constantly. Yet God in his faithfulness and in his mercy continued to love the people of Israel. So hesed really means this abundant, steadfast love. It means this goodness and mercy as sort of we translate that picture of grace out of the New Testament. Hesed is also attached in the Old Testament with the idea of covenant loyalty. In fact, it's used so often in connection with the idea of covenant that it's actually a synonym. That the word hesed can be used for the word covenant. And this really paints a picture of God's loyalty to Israel, to really to that, that people that are his, God's absolute loyalty to them in the face of their mess. God's loyal to his people. God's faithful, of course, when we're faithless. So the idea is attached to covenant, to this picture of God's binding love with his creation. It's also kind of attached in a really powerful way to the idea of truth. You know, 16 times in the Old Testament, the word hesed is attached to the word truth. In other words, God's loving kindness, his abundant, loyal, covenant, mercy-filled love is attached to the idea of truth. Now, that's important for us because in our religious culture, we have, well, we really want to separate God's grace from God's truth. What I mean is that we want to believe in a God who's absolutely total loving and, and kind of loves all and is for all over here. We want to believe in a God that is accepting and is grace-filled and is love. But we don't always want to buy into the idea of God's truth and God's doctrine and theology. We want to believe in a God that is absolute love and takes all and will be all, but we don't want to associate that with the truth that is God's word. But the idea of hesed is actually attached to the idea of truth. In other words, God's mercy and God's goodness and God's faithfulness cannot be separated from the truth of who God is. What that means is that God's law, God's word, is attached to God's mercy and to God's love. You see this word hesed that we translate to a bounding, kind of abounding or steadfast love is, is so deep and rich that it's, it's almost untranslatable. But it's important to know because the Old Testament picture of God is, is one of supreme holiness. And, 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 and an abundant love or steadfast love doesn't capture that idea. So God is, and the only real way to say it is God is hesed. God is faithful. God is merciful. God is abounding in love. God is loyal to the point of being in covenant with his people. And God is truthful to his word. That God's love cannot be separated from God's truth. I mean, that's a mouthful. So when we talk about the nature and character of God, we can't just say, God is love out of 1 John 4. In other words, God loves all and God cares for all and everything is accepted in God's eyes. Because truly to understand God as love, God as hesed, God as mercy and goodness and loyal, we have to understand that God is also God and that his truth, that his word is righteous and powerful. So God is worthy. He's worthy of the praise of the inmost parts of my soul because of the things that he does and who, the, who he is. And God is, is faithful. 
that God is my divine king, that in the midst of, of the things in my life, God is my protector and my caretaker. God will redeem me. But God is also hesed. God is loyal and faithful and abundant in his love and merciful and truthful. That God's depth of his character can't be confined to words. It's kind of what that word hesed really connotates. It gives this connotation of we can't grasp this nature of God. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, or slow to anger, abounding in this hesed. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. See, God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I think in order to really grasp this concept, this next concept of who God is, we have to have an understanding of, um, of sin, really. I mean, God is, is merciful. And there's, there's a piece of that mercy that's wrapped up in the idea of hesed, but really it needs to stand alone on some level because what the psalmist is saying here is that God does not repay us as our sins deserve or treat us um, as we should deserve for living this way. In order to really understand this, we've got to understand sin. You know, from a biblical perspective, it's impossible to understand who I am, my relationship with my fellow man, who God is, his nature and character, and the, and the way that he moves in the world, the person of Jesus Christ, the word of God, the Bible, any of that. It's impossible to understand it apart from an understanding of sin. If we do not have an understanding of our own sinfulness and what sin is, then we can't understand who God is. Now, sin, by definition, is anything in our attitude or actions and behavior or nature that misses God's mark. I mean, the word sin it has its roots as an archery term. It was used in the, the hundreds of years ago as a term that means to miss the mark. So sin is anything that misses God's holy mark of perfection. It's anything in our nature or our attitudes or our actions that miss God's mark of perfection in our lives. I mean, that is what sin is. We're not going to classify it by actions, by adultery, or by lust, or by stealing, or by murder. I mean, sin is anything in our attitude, the way that we think, our mindset, or our actions, or our very nature, who we are, that misses God's holy mark of perfection. I'm going to flip to Ephesians real fast, just because I want you to catch a glimpse of this. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the desires of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we, by nature, were objects of God's wrath. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying there's really two characteristics about sin that every single one of us has to understand. The first one is that we've all got it. This is traced all throughout Scripture. Even David said, surely I was sinful at birth. Romans 3.23 says we've all got sin in our life. Every single one of us has sin in our life. It's part of our nature. It's who we are. It makes up our attitudes, our behavior, and the very characteristics that are inside of us. 
if you're wrestling with this, if you're saying, Trevor, you know, I'm not sure that I, I'm really, I mean, I don't, I'm not really sinful. Well, you need to kind of get over that really fast because the Bible tells you you are. First John says that if you claim to be without sin, then you make God out to be a liar and his truth has no place in your life. So we all have sin, every one of us. The second principle that comes out of there is that because of it, we're dead. Now, you've heard me talk about this a lot. We talked about it last week, too. That our sin is, because of our sin, we are not dying, we are not diseased, we are not sick, we are dead. Paul says that surely we are dead in our transgressions and sin. The first part of Psalm 103 from last week, the psalmist says that, God, you have redeemed me from the pit. You remember we talked about what it means to be stuck in the bottom of this pit, unable to get out, that we have a God that doesn't just rescue us but redeems us. The difference in those words of rescuing and redeeming. See, sin is part of our nature and our character. It makes up our mindset. It infiltrates every part of us. Every single one of us has it, and because of it, we are dead. That is sin. We've got to understand that before we can understand anything else. Because until we understand our sin, we can't understand God's grace. We can't understand how much he loves us. But listen to what verse 10 says. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or pay us according to our iniquities. If God did treat us as our sins deserve, you and I would be destined to hell. We would not have fellowship on earth here with God, and we would not have fellowship in eternity. That is the reality of our sin. Our sin so separates us from God that we live in broken fellowship. We can't have fellowship with God here on earth. It's impossible because of our sin. And we cannot have fellowship with God in heaven. But Psalm 103 is one of those gospel-rich psalms that points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As believers, we have access to God through Jesus Christ. But God doesn't repay us as our sins deserve. Our sins, because of our sin, we deserve hell. Every single one of us deserves to be separated from God. Whether we like that terminology or not, does it make it less true? We deserve to be separated from God, but God doesn't treat us that way. He doesn't repay us that way. It says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. You know that word love? You know what that is? It's the Hebrew word hesed. So great is his hesed, his faithfulness, his mercy, his abundance, his loyalty, his truth for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, notice what the psalmist is doing. He's saying heavens are from the earth. He's talking spiritual. He's not talking physical. You can't pinpoint where heaven is. He's saying spiritually as far as the heavens are from the earth, so far as God removed our sin. And then he says physical, from the east is from the west, as far as your mind can imagine. Notice the east and the west never really meet from kind of a philosophical standpoint. They just keep going. And God has removed our sin from us. And as a psalm, it points us to Jesus Christ. We live in this new covenant where we have a relationship with Christ, where through Jesus, God has redeemed us. See, God is merciful. You and I, like it or not, deserve to go to hell. Just the truth. Because of the sin in our life. And no one likes to hear it, and it's not a pretty picture, but that's what we deserve, like it or not. We are totally sinful. But God is merciful. God is merciful, and because he loved you so much, he sent his son Jesus to die that if you trust in him, he redeems our life from the pit. 
The very fact that we gather here today is evidence of God's mercy. I mean, the fact that I am drawing air in my lungs is evidence that God is merciful. Because I know me, I know my life, I know what I've done, and I know what I'm capable of. Yet God is merciful. Listen to what else he says. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. What does it mean to fear God? You know, this could be a complex kind of theological discussion, but like most things theological to me, I I think they're really rather simple if we'll just look at them that way. The fear of God really boils down to two things for me and what I see in Scripture. It boils down to reverence and it boils down to worship. See, in the Old Testament, the idea of, of fear is really closely associated with the holiness of God. God is holy. Fearing God is an understanding of who God is and His majesty and glory and His holiness. It's an understanding of who we're not compared to who God is. And in our culture, as I've mentioned about Jesus several times, we turn God into sort of this buddy God where He's a shoulder to cry on and a place to go when we're really struggling. And and while that's true, God is also God. God is holy and majestic and mighty. You know, in the Old Testament, and no one looked upon God. You would die. Moses had to take his shoes off when he entered the very presence of God. And when God passed by, literally his face and his hair went white. Moses couldn't even see him and just caught a glimpse of his back as we kind of see our picture of Moses. We forget that God is a holy God. See, fearing God is understanding God's holiness. It's a recognition of who God is and who we're not. When we truly understand this idea of hesed, when we truly understand that God is all of these things, we have an understanding of reverence. We have an understanding that we don't gather here on Sunday morning to eat donuts and have coffee, but we gather here in the presence of a majestic, mighty, holy God who deserves and demands our worship and our praise. Fearing God is an understanding of God's holiness and his majesty. It's an understanding that, that it, it, Isaiah paints the picture that the, the temple, of God, uh, the temple of, uh, that was in Jerusalem wouldn't even hold the train of God's robe. That the earth is his footstool. That God is that majestic and mighty. The second thing that, that the fear of God brings about that I see is, is about worship. You know, worship is a result. It's is not an action. Worship is a result. Worship is a result of understanding who God is and who we're not. Now, hear me say that again. I mean, worship really is a result of understanding who God is and who we're not. Worship isn't something that we come and do. Worship is not an action that you gather and engage in. Worship is a result of understanding that God is God and that I am not All through Scripture, we see people come face-to-face with God. We see people come face-to-face with the person of Jesus Christ, and the result is worship. My favorite picture of this is Peter. When Peter first meets Jesus, he's sitting on, Jesus invites Peter to go out on this boat, take him out on this boat as Jesus teaches the people. When Jesus is done teaching, Peter looks at Jesus and recognizes that he's in the presence of something unbelievably magnificent and holy. And it says that Peter fell on his face before Jesus. And he said, 
Lord, away from me, for I'm a sinful man. Peter had yet to see anything about Jesus. He had yet to see Jesus cast out demons. He had yet to see Jesus feed 5,000. He would yet to see any of these miraculous things, but he knew he was in the presence of holiness, and he fell on his feet, and he just said, I'm unworthy. See, when we come face to face with who God is, worship is a result. It just happens. It just happens. But we treat worship as an activity, something that we can like and dislike, something that we approve of or we don't approve of based on music and themes and things and preachers or worship leaders or whatever. Worship is a result of a recognition of who God is and who you're not. See, the psalmist says, God is merciful. And fearing God is an understanding of his holiness. And I would venture to say that most of us, well, we need to remember and have kind of be reacquainted with this holiness of God. So here's what we're seeing in the nature and character of God thus far. God is worthy. God is worthy of the praise of the inmost parts of my soul because he is God. Because he redeems me from the pit. He heals my diseases. He renews my youth. He forgives my sin. God is worthy. God is is faithful. He's my divine king. God is my protector and my provider in ways that I don't even understand fully. But God is faithful. God is hesed. God is, is gracious and abounding in love. God is merciful. God is, he is, he is depth. He is loyal. He is truth. God is all of those things wrapped into the untranslatable. God is beyond my understanding. And then it sort of stands alone. God is, is merciful. That in the middle of my sinful mess, in this life that I am, Treb, this joke, this thing, this this sinful nature that makes up who I am. God doesn't treat me as that deserves. He doesn't separate me out. He doesn't break fellowship with me, but through Jesus Christ, he allows me to know him. And out of that, I discover worship. I discover true worship. Worship that springs from the inmost parts of my soul because God doesn't treat me as my life deserves. See, the nature and character of God is profoundly complex, but it's so important that we, as believers, have a healthy understanding of who God is and who we're not. As we close our time in worship today, what I want you to begin to challenge yourself to think about is, is is worship a result of my understanding of who God is? Or is worship just simply an activity that I've engaged in? Because if God is worthy, and and God is faithful, and God is is hesed and complex, and God is merciful, then the natural outpouring of my life, as the psalmist says, should be to praise God from the inmost parts of my soul. That those deepest resources should be praise. And you know what? Praise is not always fun. Sometimes praise is painful. Sometimes it's saying, God, I want to worship you in the middle of my brokenness. I want to worship you in the middle of my place where I am just hurting. Because you are God. You are God. Let's pray.